Can I have all elementary age kids come over here with Mr. Charlie? Go downstairs. Well, happy Thanksgiving. How many people have already started listening to Christmas music? How many people have already watched a Christmas movie? How many of you already have a tree that is up and decorated? All right. <laughs> we also got a tree yesterday and have it all up in our, our living room, and it looks beautiful. Um, this is an exciting time of year. And as we're continuing in our Deuteronomy series, we're starting to, to move forward to uh, next week. It's going to be the first week of Advent. Um, this word Advent just means uh, to come. We're, we're, it's a season of waiting, waiting for the one who is to come. And in this season, we enter into an experience of waiting that, that Israel had for a long time because God had promised all the way back in Genesis. He had promised that this one was going to come and crush the head of the serpent, that the one who had brought death and destruction to the world, that God was going to send someone to crush him and make things right. And then God promises to Abraham that he's going to use Abraham to bless all nations and to affect the whole world. And then through Moses, he promises that another one like Moses is going to come to lead God's people. And, and on and on, God makes these promises that there's one who's going to come. And so we enter into this season of waiting for the one who is going to come and to make all things right. And as Christians, we know we both are looking back and looking forward in this moment. We look back to that, that moment when God himself entered into humanity, when the God of the universe took on flesh and was born as a baby in a little manger. And that we look forward to, to this Christmas holiday. We think about that moment of the incarnation, of God coming to dwell with man. But we also look forward Ignore the person behind the screen, uh, the man behind the screen. Uh, if you, we also look forward to this time when that, that Savior, that King, is going to come again, and he's going to restore God's shalom of the garden. He's going to bring peace to the world. He's going to make all things new. And so in this moment of, of waiting, we both look back to that season of waiting for him to come and to walk among us, and we wait now for him to come again when he will again walk among us. But in the meantime, here in Deuteronomy, we see God setting this up, putting this whole plan in motion, and he does that by creating the special people for himself, this people that's set apart and different from whom his Messiah will come. And so here in Deuteronomy, we see God preparing Israel for their entry into the promised land. And so Moses is, is using uh, all this Everything we're reading about in Deuteronomy is most preparing them to finish their season of waiting and to enter into this promise, this new land that God has given to them. And, and so as we read through this and, and all throughout this series, we've been reading about this, this special community. What is this people like that God has created from whom his Messiah is going to come? So that's what we're going to continue looking at this morning in chapter 26. So I'm going to invite you to grab the Bible underneath your seat. Uh, or if you've got your own, um, we're going to be at chapter 26, starting in verse 1. It 
So you can read along with me there. He says, uh, Moses says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which, your harv- which you harvest from your land, that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And you shall go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of your God. So we see here as Moses uh, is, is talking about this idea of tithing. Now, I'm sure this, maybe some of this language sounds familiar, taking the first fruits and giving it back to God. The first place we actually see this is all the way at the beginning with Cain and Abel in, in Genesis chapter 4, that they bring forward the first fruits of, of their, their labor, the produce that they've made, and they give it back to God. So this is a, a consistent theme we see throughout parts of the Old Testament, this idea of giving back to God in worship. And Moses gives them more specific instructions about this in Deuteronomy chapter 14. He says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And, and um, this word tithe means tenth. So you, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name to dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and of the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And he goes on to say, uh, in verse 20 and 29, at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work your hands, of your hands that you do. So we see this huge shift that's happening here, where Israel has been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Now in the desert, God was providing for them miraculously with manna every day. So every day they'd go out and they'd collect the food that they needed for that day. And they weren't allowed to collect any more than that. And if they, if they did, it immediately went bad. So other than the Sabbath, uh, they were not to store up any food. But we see happening here is a shift to now they're going to be, they're going to be working. They're going to be producing their food. They're going to be working in agriculture and they're going to be raising uh, flocks and tending herds. And there's this shift from God for them God doing everything on their behalf, rescuing them out of Egypt without their help. In fact, in spite of them most of the time, bringing them out totally by his grace. But then moving into this relationship where now God is with them. He's working with them. He's using them to produce things that they're going to steward, they're going to take care of, and they're going to use them for God's glory. And so we see this shift from God for them to God with them, that he's working with them and on their behalf. So as we look at this idea of tithing, giving back of first fruits to God, we see, we're going to see two different purposes. We have both a spiritual component and a practical component. And so first of those is the spiritual. I want to say this, that tithing is, is worship. Because when we give away something, it reveals our own dependency on God. It reveals that the fact that what we have is not something we earned on our own, but it's something that God has generously given to us 
And that when we give it away, it reminds us of its source. That it doesn't just come from ourselves. And so as we think about Thanksgiving, just coming off of this holiday, and we think about the things that we're grateful for, I think there's this connection here that Thanksgiving results in generosity. Because when we recognize the source of what we have, that we feel free to give it away. And that as we give it away, it reminds us again of that source. And so it it results in this cycle of of thanksgiving and generosity. Now, I was reading about this, and there were a lot of people debating, and what exactly does the tithe mean, and and how does that apply to us today, and and a lot of use of this. Well, God loves a cheerful giver, so we shouldn't be compelled to give. That's that's bad, right? right? We We shouldn't have to give anything. And I think there's a point to this, that God God does ultimately want a heart of thanksgiving, right? Like, that's, that's what God is after. And if, and if we are tithing and, and giving, but not out of a heart of thanksgiving, then we're, we're missing the point. But I think there's also a sense in which as we give, again, we are reminded of that source, and it leads to thanksgiving. And that's, it's this cycle of both giving generously and being thankful, So thanksgiving leads to generosity, but I think generosity also cultivates thanksgiving in our hearts. So he goes on to give them the reason for their thanksgiving. He says, you shall make response before the Lord your God. So this is continuing verse 5 and 26. You shall make response for the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. So Moses has them recite this litany, right? So they come in and they bring in their their first fruits of the things that they produced from their vineyards and their fields and their flocks. And he has them recite this history of who they are. A wandering Aramean was my father. All right, my, my father was homeless. He, he, he didn't have a, a land to call his own. He was, God, God had called him to follow him into this new place. And he was forced by famine into Egypt, where he was a refugee and needed to be provided for and taken care of by another people. And so he's reminding them that, that this salvation that they have, this new land that they have, is totally by this free grace of God. That God has rescued them and given them salvation that they don't deserve. And so all of the produce that they have, all of the good things that they have, are not things that they deserve because they work so hard for them, but are things that God has given to them so generously. And so we, we see this shift, again, from the, the manna of daily provision to this stewardship over abundance. And many of us are familiar with abundance, and that's a lot of what this this whole holiday is about. We're thankful for this 
abundance at our table. How many of you guys like Thanksgiving leftovers? Right? I mean, I think that's probably the best part. Whether it's the potato pancakes, um, frying up some of those mashed potato pancakes, or uh, turkey casserole. Um, you start to mash together all the leftovers, and you get this wonderful, delicious thing because we have so much of it. Right? We cooked all this food. We had a giant turkey for only a handful of us, and we were going to eat turkey for days. And that's part of what we're so grateful and thankful for is this abundance. But the question is, how do we steward that abundance without forgetting the dependency? When we have more than enough, it's so easy for us to forget that daily need we have for God's provision. And he warns them of this by going into this new land back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities you did not build, houses full of all good things you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So how do they keep from forgetting that everything they have is this incredible gift from God that they didn't earn or work for, houses they didn't build, cities that are there, vineyards that they didn't plant, is through generosity. That as they're being generous, they're reminded of where they came from and who they are. And so this thanksgiving results in generosity. Now, growing up, I, I found this concept really difficult because I really bought into this overall kind of American dream that I, I did it all on my own, right? I, I worked really hard to get where I am today. That, that, and it, it, for, it, it resulted in me thinking that I was self-sufficient, but also really able to look down and condemn other people. Well, they just didn't work as hard as I did. They're, they're kind of lazy. They don't, they're not as motivated. But as I began to understand the gospel, I began to understand this concept of, of privilege that I had been given, right? And before, when people would bring up this idea of privilege, whether it was because I was white or male or middle class or whatever, I got, I got defensive. Like, no, I did this on my own. I earned this. I worked hard to get here. And I, didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't see how much of it was this generous gift from God. And as I began to understand the gospel, that all of this is this free gift of grace, and I began to see that everything I had was a result of the blessings that I've been given. That I only am where I am today because of the family I was born into, the schools that they sent me to, the, the, the fact they told me that I could do whatever I wanted to do and pursue my dreams and that I had enough of a security to make that possible. And even when I worked in high school, I worked for fun so I could go do fun things. I didn't do it because my family needed to put food on the table. There was already an abundance of food. And there are so many people out there who work so much harder than I do, but have so much less, and may never have the kind of privileges that I have today, because of just where I was born into. And just like that, the Israelites are coming into this land of things that they didn't build, that they didn't earn. Vineyards that have been planted for years and years and years. It takes a long time to grow good grapes. 
You got to work at it until the soil and the vines take a long time to become strong and to actually produce something good. With the fields to cultivate and produce a good crop and harvest can take years. And all of that was already done for them. And how many of us and how often do we forget that what we have is just a generous gift from God? And see, this gospel, we see here that this gospel of grace is not just this individualistic thing, right? Just about me and, and my thanks to God, but that it overflows in generosity to others. And so God's generosity to us should result in our generosity. That our thanksgiving to God should look like generosity back to those around us. And so as Israel remembers this privilege that they've been given, they're called to transform their society, to live a different kind of life, a different kind of community because of what they've been given. And so here we see that tithing is practical. And so he gives us three different categories, three different ways in which it's practical. So the first is that of the Levites. Now the Levites were the priestly clan. Okay, so God had set apart one clan. These are uh, descendants of Aaron, and they are facilitating the worship of the community. They're doing the sacrifices on behalf of the people for sin, for thanksgiving, for worship, back to God. They're the ones facilitating all of the worship of the community that the people of God are centered around, right? This is the core, the center of who they are as a people, is that they worship Yahweh God. And the, and the Levites facilitate that worship. But because they're spending all their time doing this, they can't go out work in the and work in the fields. They don't have the time to go out and to do the things that they might do to earn a living, to take care of their families. And so God calls the people to provide for them so that this act of worship, this facilitation of worship can go on in the community. We see Paul reiterating this idea in 1 Corinthians uh, 9.13. He says, Do not know that those who work in the temple eat of its food, and those who serve at the altar partake of its offerings. In the same way, the Lord has prescribed to those who preach the gospel, prescribed that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, Paul himself was bivocational at points. He was making tents and doing gospel ministry. But he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, I did this so that you could receive the gospel freely. I, I, I worked so that you didn't have to pay me or provide for me because I wanted you to receive the gospel freely. But now that you've received the gospel, you've received the generosity of God's grace, I want you to give generously so that other people can receive the gospel. And so their, the reception of the gospel is resulting in generosity so that Paul can keep bringing the gospel to other people. And so we see this practical way in which giving ties back into worship. That enables the worship to happen, for the community to be grounded around the worship of Yahweh God. Now, the second part of this is about maintaining the community itself as well. So he talks about the widows and orphans. And so worship is happening in this community, but the community is also facilitating that worship. It's, it's holding that together. And we see a transformed community as a result of that. See, a really cool picture of this in Deuteronomy chapter 15. He says, However, there will be no poor among you, since the Lord will surely bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess. 
If only you listen obediently to the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all this commandment which I am commanding you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow, and you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely open your hand to him, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is also no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and your eye is hostile towards your brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing uh, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all your undertakings. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy, and the poor in the land. And so we see this worship-centered community that's living out justice. That everyone in the community is being taken care of, is having enough. We see this picture of the early church in Acts 2 that says all, they had all things in common. People are liquidating their assets so that other people can have enough to be provided for. There's this community where there's enough for all people. And so it's this unique people that God is setting apart that, that looks different. It looks different from the rest of the world. They're not, just, you know, the, the, they're not just letting the poor people die out in the streets, right? They're taking them in. They're taking care of the people. But they're also not just taking care of their own, right? It's not this exclusive thing, this kind of tribalism, like we take care of ours and, you know, we don't care what happens to everybody else. But actually, we see a very different thing happening here. We see this, this other command in, wrapped up in this, of the Levite, the, the widow and the orphan in the community, but also the sojourner. Now, we hear this word sojourner, and I think we use this to mean like a traveler, right? Like, and, and sort of romanticized, like, I'm going to go backpacking through Europe kind of thing. But this word in Hebrew really refers to a, a refugee. So a, a man who, either alone or with his family, leaves his village and tribe because of war, famine, pestilence, blood guilt, uh, etc., and seeks shelter and sojourn elsewhere, where his right to own land, to marry, and to participate in the administration of justice in the cult and in war is curtailed. So this is someone who has been forced out of their home because of some kind of calamity and forced into another land that is not their own, where they don't belong. And here God is saying, I want you to care for those people. These people who aren't even in the covenant, right? Like they're not part of God's special covenant people. But he's saying, I want you to open your arms to them. That when they come in, they're going to have enough. You're going to feed them. Every three years, you're going to put everything into this big food bank. And when, they, when these people come into your land and they need help, you're going to take care of them. And so even here, even though God is creating this exclusive, special, unique community, he's doing it for the nations, Right? So the long-term goal here is that God is creating a place from whom his Messiah will come to bless all nations. Even here, we see nations coming into the people of Israel and being welcomed in, being brought in to be, to be fed and taken care of, that ultimately they would see the gospel in this generosity, and they would see the generous God who is provided for Israel and turn to worship this God. And the reason that God tells them to do this is he says, because you, 
We're refugees. And so it's out of thanksgiving that you give to these refugees. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for, his, uh, for the orphan and the widow, and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him, and shall, you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done these great and awesome things. For which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So the Israelites were, were forced into Egypt by famine as refugees. They came to Egypt. The only reason Egypt had abundance is because of Joseph, that God had provided for abundance in Egypt so that his people could be brought into Egypt and be provided for as sojourners, as refugees. Uh, we, we see God's heart again in Exodus chapter 22. He says, He who sacrifices to any God other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. So here we've got God setting two things. Don't worship other gods and take care of the poor and the sojourner, right? He's putting these two things up as both being these divine mandates and as having these divine consequences, right? This isn't like worship and, well, I guess you could take care of people too. No, he's like, these, are, these, are, these things are both here because if you worship, if you really recognize the generous God that I am, you cannot not be generous, and if you're not being generous, it's because you don't know who I am and you're not worshiping me. And so there's this connection between worship and responsibility, thanksgiving and generosity. In Leviticus 19, he lays out an additional uh, provision for how this is going to happen. He says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the, so the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as you love yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So not only are they giving tithes, to go into this sort of food bank every, every few years, but they're also not even harvesting all of their crops, not even collecting everything so that there's, there is abundance for those who are passing through, those who are in need can come and to glean and to take from that abundance. The question is, do we treat the refugees and the aliens as our own? Do we love them as we love ourselves? Or do we try to keep them out? and ignore their plight. We not want to think about this reality. Since the hurricane in September, thousands of Puerto Ricans have poured into this valley, especially Holyoke and, and Chicopee and some of these areas just south of us. And we here in Amherst are very sheltered from that reality. 
right? Like you see the street lawn sign, the lawn signs that are like, we welcome all people. But like, they're not coming here. They're coming, they're going to Holyoke. They're going to Chicopee. They're not coming to Amherst. We're not getting the full brunt of the social and economic impacts of, of the refugee, of the sojourner who's coming into our community. And one of the ways that we as a church, I've been just to do a small, something small is to, to help donate to that, to give to those people who are coming here into our community and are in need. Some of you may have noticed there's this little sign at the back there that we're taking donations to give to people in Holyoke right now. And I would challenge you this week as a really simple way to, to say, how can I love the, the refugee as my own? Is to, to, to donate to that. Go, go look at that, the sign back there and see what they need. You know, diapers and food and whatever it is that we can do to help our community, to help these people who are coming here and are in need from this devastation that has wiped out their homes and brought them to a land that is not their home. How can we show them the generosity of God with our love? Because we too are helpless. We too were refugees estranged from God. We too were orphans distant from God, our Father. But we have been adopted. We have been brought home into his family so that we are no longer lost and without a home. And so as we think about Thanksgiving, we see this worship-centered community that's marked by justice for all people because this Thanksgiving to God is resulting in generosity for all. And that it doesn't result in this idea of of being exceptional, right? Israel isn't this exceptional people that's super great, right? God's like, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest. I didn't choose you because you were the best. But I set my love upon you because through you, I want to bring my glory to the world. And so just in that same way, we're not here as part of this community because we are exceptional. We're just here because God chose us not because we deserve it, not because we worked harder, not because we're special in some way, but because God set his love on us who were totally undeserving and brought us here to be embraced. Similar, we are not here because we're accomplished, right? We don't have what we have because we've worked so hard and we're so accomplished, but because we've been gifted. Because God has given us the very air in our lungs and the work of our hands and the ability to, to do the things that we do. And even that is entirely a gift from God. And so when we are generous with those gifts, it proclaims the gospel. Because we are generous because God is generous. I want to address a few different aspects as we think about this. I think one thing that comes up is is this relationship between our, our faith and our works Right? If it's this free gift of grace, then, then why are we called to, to do these things, right? And I, I think we see this perfectly played out in this situation, this shift from Israel, from God for us to God with us. That in Egypt, they were totally helpless, right? Oppressed as slaves, they don't have any, any power, and God comes in and totally rec- rescues them out of Egypt. Parts the Red Sea, does all these miraculous signs, right? As the whole time they're afraid and they're grumbling and we don't want to do this, and, and he, he drags them out of Egypt into the desert to take care of them. 
And he gives them this land that they haven't earned, they don't deserve. And there's this totally free gift of grace. Right? I think that's, when we think about this idea of justification in, in Christian salvation, we have justification and sanctification and glorification. And we're justified that God has given us this free gift of grace through his son. The ultimate gift, right? This Messiah that was to come, God has given us himself so that we can be brought into relationship with him. And that's something that we could never do anything to, to earn, to make happen. He just sets his love on us and welcomes us in. But once we've been brought into that family, he calls us to live as part of that family. And so again, we see this shift from this, just trust me, I'm going to do everything for you, to, okay, now let's come do it with me, right? We looked at last week, God was calling the Israelites to go in and to fight, right? This is terrifying. They're going to go in and fight these enemies who are bigger and stronger than them. And so at some level, like, it's, it's all God, right? Like, he's winning those battles. He's, he's taking care of everything, right? Like, they're not out there because they're military prowess. But they still have to get out there and pull out the sword and stand on the front line, right? Like, there's this involvement that God is inviting in, them into. I want you to be part of this. I want to be part of what I'm doing. And then they're going to go and they're going to work the fields, right? It's not just this miraculous provision of manna every day, but it's, they're going to go out and they're going to work hard all year to produce this harvest, this abundance. And yes, it's God who's giving it to them. Yes, it's him who makes things grow and who makes it rain and provides, but they're, they're involved in the process. And then they're stewarding the good things, the gifts that he's given to them. And so the same for us today, that we, we've received this free gift of grace, but then we're called to live these lives that reflect God's generosity, to be holy as he is holy, to look like him, to live like him, to be generous the way he is generous. And so we respond in thanksgiving to that free gift of grace by living out these lives of generosity. We're called to steward the abundance that God has given to us. The one other thing I wanted to think about and, and address in, in this holiday uh, is the whole, the whole season of Thanksgiving, this holiday of Thanksgiving. Um, and as I was reading about it and thinking about it, I noticed a lot of parallels. I was really struck by the story of Israel and, and the story of our country, the founding of the United States of America. And, you know, many of us hear the, the classic stories of Columbus sailed the ocean blue, 1942. Um, or, and then we've got the pilgrims, right, coming in 1620. So we've got basically uh, almost 100, we've got over 100 years of time between Columbus and the pilgrims, right? We don't really hear about anything in between that. But in that time, they brought with them diseases and things that actually wiped out most of the native population. I mean, experts estimate as much as 90% of the population was completely eradicated by smallpox and other diseases that there was no immunity to on this continent because they'd never been exposed to before. And so the pilgrims leave this land of persecution. They sail across the Great Sea and they come to this new land. And there are fields cleared that have been tilled and, and are fertile. There's, there's all this open space. There's all these things that have been prepared for them by peoples that have lived here for a very, very long time. And so they begin to see themselves as, as these 
going from Exodus, Egypt, to the promised land. They're coming into this promised land. And uh, John Winthrop, one of the, the leaders in that, com- er, that first community, uh, in a great sermon, he, recon- he talks about them being the city on a hill, this, this new community. Um, and there's something really great about that. Like, they're like, we're going to produce, we're going to make a community that's centered around God, right? Like, we're going to worship God, and that's going to be the foundation of our community. And there's something awesome about that. But they also see themselves as this, this new Jerusalem, right? Like, we are the new people of God, promised people. And as they do that, and they see themselves coming to this land, they start to see the, the Indians as the Canaanites, the people who are sort of keeping them from having this, this special land that God has promised to them. And so, consequentially, uh, consequently, we start to see these ideas of manifest destiny and things coming out of this mentality. And I think despite these circumstantial similarities, right, there were a lot of similar kind of things happening, we need to see that these are very, very different uh, historical events. That what happened in Israel was a totally unique event. That God was creating a space so his Messiah could come into the world and bless all nations, to bring his gospel to all people. And so God is bringing them into this space. He says, yes, I'm going to wipe out these people, and I'm going to use you to do it, but it's not because you're special, right? It's not because there's anything great about you, but it's because I'm, I'm bringing judgment, and I'm going to give you this little square of land, right? And this is it. I'm not launching you off on this conquest. I'm giving you this little space to create a unique community so that all the world can receive my gospel. And so as Christians, we're not this this separate, special, geographical, or ethnic, or cultural group, right? That is the special chosen people of God. But we see that God's people is, God's kingdom is now for all people to be welcomed in and brought in to the kingdom. We see Jesus condemning this attitude in Luke 18, 9-14. So he, t- he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with, others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the grace of the gospel should result in our generosity to others, right? If we think, thank you, God, that I'm so special, like that, you're completely missing the point. The thankfulness is, thank you, God, that you are so generous. Thank you that you are so good. Thank you that I'm, I'm so undeserving of your love. Have mercy on me. And when we actually realize that mercy that we've received and respond in thankfulness, then we can turn and give that same generous grace to those around us because we've received the generosity from God. So if you're here this morning and you've never received God's generous gift of his son, you've never experienced this generous God who wants to give you not even just good gifts, but he wants to give you himself. That he gives you his life so that you can be in communion with him, to share life with him. If you've never had a relationship with this God, then I invite you this morning 
to take that first step of receiving that free grace. There's nothing you got to do. You just have to say, God, I trust you. God, I, I want to I I be in relationship with you. And then you just receive. You receive his love and you receive his grace that he wants to pour out on you. And if you have received that generous gift of grace this morning, and you, you've received that gift of his son who came to walk among us and die on our behalf, this Jesus Christ, our Savior, then I urge you this morning to respond with thanksgiving. To respond with thanksgiving by giving generously to God. Not, not your tithe, not just a tenth of what you have, but everything. Your whole life, your whole body, your time, your energy, your everything in worship back to God. But also by giving generously to those who are in need so that they can see what the gospel looks like. This free gift of grace, both to the poor who are within our own community, but also to the refugee and those who come among us who are in need. So they can see this generous God. This is why we come to this table every week, to be reminded of the generosity of God. We come with thanksgiving because we were the orphans. We were the, the widows, the estranged, the refugee. And God welcomed us home. And so Jesus, God himself, given as a gift to us, to sinful humanity, sat down with his disciples, invited them to the table, and said, this is my body, broken for you, as he broke the bread and gave it to them. And the same way he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood, shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we come to this table every week to receive with thanksgiving the generosity of a God who withheld nothing from us, not even his own son. May we open our own arms to invite others to our table. And so I invite you here this morning, if you have received that gift of God, if you've received that salvation, and I encourage you to, to come up this morning to receive with thanksgiving. This is your first time here with us. The way we do this is you're going to come in here and make two lines here, and you're going to receive you're going to receive the bread, you're going to take the cup, and then file back around to your seat. And if you're here this morning, and you've never met that generous God, you've never experienced that relationship, then I invite you right now just to remain at your seat, and to think, and to pray. And, and maybe if you're willing right now to open, open your arms, and open your hands, and just say, God, I need, I need to receive that. I can't do this on my own. I need your free gift of grace. During this time, we're going to have some people at the back who would love to pray with you. Um, so I'd also invite you to come back for prayer. Um, but I'm going to pray right now and invite our communion servers up. Father God, you are so good. You are so generous with us. Or may we see your goodness, Lord. And just worship you for who you are, Lord. And just be overwhelmed this morning by your incredible goodness. Lord, we, we open our hands and we receive 
from you, Lord. This wonderful grace. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.